Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Stephen Hansen, Associate Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Lauren Martz, Executive Director of Biopharma Intelligence. And Karen Tkach-Tesman, Senior Editor. On this week's pod, public market investors may have shied away from preclinical companies amid biotech's bear market, but large biopharmas have ramped up their deal-making for early-stage assets and are willing to pay for access to new modalities. Lauren will detail what FDA's approval of Bluebird's beta-thalassemia gene therapy means for the field, and Karen will detail the latest in epigenome editing. Today's podcast is brought to you by the BioCentury Bay Helix East-West Biopharma Summit. It is scheduled for November 14th to the 16th in Redwood City in the San Francisco Bay Area. Virtual attendance and option. At the summit, U.S., European, and Asian biopharma executives and investors will debate globalization strategies to maximize company and patient value. It will include strategic panels, company presentations, one-to-one meetings, C-level networking, and an exclusive report from our partners McKinsey and Company. Learn more and register at biocenturyeastwest.com. First off, let's start with Simone to give us a little preview of what to expect next week from BioCentury's 30th annual back-to-school issue. Thanks, Stephen. Right, so this is the time of year where we roll out our back-to-school issue, which this year, like last, is actually a package. And we'll be rolling that out Monday through Friday with a new story each day. Importantly for these listeners, there's going to be a podcast each day where we'll discuss the topic that we're rolling out. And then on the Friday, we do our traditional overarching essay. The whole package is going to be available also in a PDF to subscribers, and there's a bunch of data decks. So what's the topic this year? May not come as a surprise to you because we've been talking about it a lot, but we are digging into talent. And many of our podcast listeners and people beyond participated in a huge survey, well, for us, huge survey, that I think we got over 600 responses to about the talent ecosystem. We talked to people and we surveyed people, what I call up and down the chain, all the way from executives to people, entry level, and even job seekers. And we asked them what's keeping them up at night, what will make them stay, what will make them leave. And really, the package is focused on what is the leader of the future, the biotech leader of the future. It was an incredibly interesting project to do. So I encourage you all tune in next week. And um, if you're not yet a subscriber, now is probably a really good time to subscribe because there's a lot of really interesting content in there, data and analysis. Thanks, Simone. I know it was a ton of work to put this all together. So I'm really looking forward to launching it next week and having everyone uh, take a look at all the work that we've done. For now, I think I'd like to move on and talk a little bit about some of the analysis that we did last week around preclinical dealmaking. Just wanted to set the scene a little bit on sort of what the genesis for this was. It was really around the fact that what we'd heard from public market investors was that they had really been shying away, sort of shunning preclinical companies, both in terms of IPOs and already public biotechs. And so kind of raised the question of, you know, whether preclinical companies, have they increased their deal-making tempo in response to, to this, basically the difficulty in being able to raise capital, you know, during this bear market. For this analysis, we really focused on partnerships, not acquisitions. And so 
you know, I guess sort of the short answer to the question is yes, you know, we have really seen an uptick in that tempo. Stephen, if you follow the money, where are large biopharmas really showing the most interest for preclinical assets? Sure. Well, the clear trend was really toward new modalities. I looked at 51 deals since the start of 2020 that had an upfront cash payment of $50 million or more, and 75% of those deals were for new modalities. The front runners was RNA therapies, so either assets or technologies that use RNA as a therapeutic in its own right, or therapies that modulate RNA. But the next most frequent areas were gene editing and cell therapy. So, you know, there was really a lot of interest around these new modalities. And Stephen, tell us also a little, you looked at the upfronts, which I think is really, you know, important because that's the actual cash that they get in hand, right? That's right. But what's that, you know, is, is that as a proportion of the whole being changing? Is it more backloaded, frontloaded? What are you seeing in terms of the way people are structuring these deals? Sure. Yeah, no, I think that was probably one of the most interesting takeaways that I, I found. I wasn't, you know, going into the analysis, I was sort of expecting to see the upfront payments fall, just given the fact that if you think back to the really great years for biotech financing, you know, a lot of companies, because they had such easy access to capital, they were able to really leverage that and get great terms for their deals. And so with them being in the midst of a bear market, my expectation was that you would see a fall in terms of, you know, what they'd be able to garner for an upfront payment. But we really didn't see that. The upfront payments, the average was basically the same as it was over the past two years. I thought that was quite interesting that biopharma partners are still ascribing sort of the same level of value to these preclinical assets and technologies now as, as they were two years ago. But you're right, Simone, to point out that that is the one thing that has changed this year is we're seeing these deals are much more backloaded in a relative sense. So what I did is I looked at the upfront payments compared to the total deal value and look, kind of looked at that ratio. And uh, over the past decade, it was usually around 6.5%. And this year, it's dropped to about 4.8%. So it's sort of a relative drop of about 25%. So there definitely can be a trend that a lot of these deals are, or the bio bucks at least, are being pushed more to the back end. And these are partnering deals, of course. You know, I, I agree with you. I think it is very interesting because you understand that the markets will be a little bit shaky over untested technologies. Obviously, all those preclinical IPOs made people nervous. But I, I think that what this really shows is that inside the industry, this is still seen as the driver or one of the big drivers. I just wanted to confirm with you, Stephen. So most of the partners were actually large biopharmas, right? These are not a whole ton of small to small deals. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. I mean, well, for sure on, on the larger, for the companies that were having the larger front payments, that's for sure the case. Yeah. I mean, of course there was some biotech deals, but yeah, it was mostly sort of farmers or large biofarmers that were involved here. And one more question. I know early in the pandemic, we saw a ton of deal making over pandemic related therapies and so on, or vaccines in some cases. Has that skewed the data at all? So that was when I was looking at the volume that was of preclinical deals. 2020 jumped out as being by far the largest for, for these preclinical assets and technologies being involved in partnerships. And so at the pace that we're going on this year, in that respect, it's going to be probably the second largest in the past decade. However, you're right. There were 591 deals, I think, in 2020, but 180 of those were COVID-related 
Whereas this year, we've only seen 12 preclinical deals that were COVID related. So that definitely did skew the data. You know, sort of you back that out really makes it look like this year is probably going to be the, the largest volume in terms of these preclinical deals. I mean, that's always a difficult one to back out because if they weren't doing those deals and there wasn't the pandemic, they'd have probably been doing other deals. So, you know, but, but it is an important sort of confounding factor to bear in mind. Yeah, it's a fair point. In retrospect, sort of thinking about over the weekend, I think, you know, one of my takeaways from this is that I know a lot of companies are looking for ways, you know, to conserve their cash and they might be thinking about shelving, you know, some of their preclinical assets or things. But I guess this to me showed that there is a clear interest out there for these sorts of programs. And so maybe companies need to consider, you know, exploring that if they if they are already. But I'd like to uh, bring Lauren in now to move on to our next topic. Last week, we saw FDA approve Bluebird's Zinteglo gene therapy for beta thalassemia. But the company's been through its fair share of troubles, Lauren. I mean, they had safety concerns for the Lendivirus platform. Their CFO departed. They're running short on cash. What do you see as the prospects for Bluebird to succeed in the U.S. when you know it had a failure in its commercial launch in Europe? So I, I think it's all about the payers, the, you know, the healthcare system in the U.S. and in Europe. The, the systems are very different. And failing to reach an agreement with the, the European HTAs really shuts the door on those markets. But in the U.S., thalassemia patients are, are younger. They're not necessarily the Medicare population. The majority of these people are covered by the commercial insurance providers. This is Bluebird's opportunity to negotiate with the individual payers in the U.S., the, you know, the private insurers, to come to a deal. You know, they're talking about outcomes-based agreements, which was also on the table in the European negotiations, which is you know, absolutely the right way to go when you're trying to de-risk this type of one-time therapy in the eyes of payers. I think the fate of this therapy is going to be widely watched even beyond its relevance to this particular disease. You know, people have really struggled, including Bluebird, as you pointed out, with how to reimburse for something that is intended to be a one and done therapy. So whether how well this commercial model works will be very important. There's a wave of other gene therapies, not to mention CAR-Ts and so on further down the pike. There's been a little bit of precedent in some ways. I know that alnylams on Patro, which was the first RNAi drug to get FDA approval, when that was launched with a performance-based agreement, it sort of had staggered rebates for suboptimal outcomes so that if you had to ended up needing a liver transplant, you could get reimbursed for some of that within financial limits. So I think the idea is that when you start these treatments, you just don't know how long they're going to work or how well they're going to work. And why should you pay for something if it didn't work? Lauren, have you, have you got any other sort of nuances on you know, information on how that might work? Sure. So they're they're saying it's it's the same idea. They're saying that the price tag is 2.8 million, and they're thinking of outcomes based agreements where up to 80 percent of that price would be reimbursed if patients do not achieve transfusion independence within a two year time frame. Which to me leaves this open question of we don't necessarily know how long these gene therapies are going to work. There's still some risk to the payer in that model in clinical trials. It was a small group. It was 41 patients who've been through phase three testing. And some of them were followed for more than five years. And about 89% of those patients did become transfusion independent. And the ones who did have remained transfusion independent. So it seems like this is a relatively 
safe bet in the short term that those patients who get to that point within two years are going to stay there. It's something that I think payers can model. It's a pretty small patient population. They're talking about 1,000 to 1,500 transfusion-dependent thalassemia patients in the U.S. So I think it's a good opportunity to test this model without a huge potential budget impact to these individual payers. So Lauren, the, the, there are also plenty of competing technologies out there in the same space, uh, you know, in particular gene editing platforms that uh, I believe at least one of them has demonstrated, you know, some pretty compelling early data. Can you talk a little bit about what this approval kind of means for, for them? Sure. So I think the, the main risk with this therapy is that there's this thought in the back of everyone's mind that there's the potential that this gene therapy could cause cancer. You know, this is a lentiviral gene therapy. It carries that risk. You know, we're seeing like a 90% efficacy rate. It's not perfect. Not every patient's going to respond. You know, it's not guaranteed to be safe in the long term for everyone. And there are a lot of other gene therapies, gene-based therapies coming through the pipeline. The CRISPR-Vertex data was really impressive for thalassemia and sickle cell. And in that case, you're not using a lentiviral vector, you're using CRISPR gene editing to turn back on expression of fetal hemoglobin, which is also not a perfect solution. You know, you're not correcting the adult hemoglobin expression. And there are other companies doing that. But the question that I have is whether all of those patients out there who exist now, if, if you take this bluebird therapy, is that the end, you know, if this doesn't work for you, is there a chance to, to use these other therapies? Are you essentially taking the whole market by approving this? And I know that these are all stem cell transplants at this time. So each time you do a stem cell transplant, the risks go up and up. I, I don't know that these patients would be eligible to get you know their stem cells edited again with a different therapy that may prove to be more effective or safer in the future. So it'll be interesting to see the uptake of this therapy and what this means for the market size of, of the ones that come behind it. Those are all good questions. Thanks, Lauren. And also a great segue mentioning CRISPR, because Karen, I know you were involved with our colleague Danielle's analysis around epigenome editing. And so can you tell us a little bit about what approaches companies are taking uh, in that field? Sure. So as we're starting to see more use of catalytically active, the CRISPR-Cas enzymes in the clinic, there's this rise of what we call rise of the dead Cas coming behind it. So these are therapies where you're taking CRISPR's homing functions of the Cas protein, but you're getting rid of the catalytically active portion. So it's not going to be cutting anything, but it's going to be bringing effector domains to target sites of interest. And so we dug into what that means in the context of what we call uh, epigenetic editing. And so there's a, a spurt of companies that have come up in this space. Uh, a lot of the usual suspects from the gene editing world having a play here as well in terms of founding the companies. And the premise here is that the, the dead cast enzymes are bringing machinery that's going to cause changes in gene expression. So tuning gene expression up and down. And one of the interesting things to see was that the sort of first wave of this field seems to have been focused around bringing transcription factor domains to sites of interest to stimulate transcription up or tamp it down. And part of the toolbox now is also bringing enzymes or domains that are going to facilitate epigenetic changes. So really directly impacting 
the, say, methylation or acetylation marks on the chromatin, which could lead to even longer lasting effects. And so that's one of the promises of this epigenetic editing is that because epigenetic marks are inherited across cell divisions, if you make changes at a certain point in time in the cell, that these will be stable potentially throughout the the daughter cells of that cell, leading to long-lasting effects. Karen, so who are the companies that are involved in this space right now? Who are who are kind of the leaders in the uh, in the clubhouse at the moment? So we've got four companies that have come out over the last four years that have disclosed financings and are acting in this space. The company in the space that's raised the most money so far is Chroma, and it's raised $125 million so far. And uh, David Liu, he of the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard and serial entrepreneurs, is among the list of co-founders, Luigi Naldini as well, others. But they're definitely not alone. We've got Tune, which brings in some of the folks from the zinc finger world, Fyodor Ernov, professor of mine at UC Berkeley. And so they've got, in addition to the dead cast, they've got zinc fingers and tail proteins in their homing domain toolbox as well. We've got Epic Bio, founded in 2018 by Stanley Chi, who was part of the University of California CRISPR patents. And then we also have the latest entrant to emerge, Epigenic, came out of stealth August 7th with 20 million in angel and pre-Series A funding. And we've also seen some other companies in this space that Danielle has captured. For example, Navega Therapeutics, founded in 2018, and Modalis Therapeutics uh, from Japan, founded in 2016. And those companies have, seem so far, been focusing on the transcription factor domain recruiting approach. But, uh, you know, all of these approaches have the potential to impact gene expression tuning it up and down to get a desired therapeutic effect. So it'll be really interesting to see this space evolve. Yeah, I know. It's a very interesting space, Karen. And I think it'll be one that'll be really interesting to follow closely. And I'm always impressed by how much information you can retain, Karen, off the top of your head. So well done. (laughs) Well done on that. Um, Well, thank you. And, you know, while we're on the topic of awesome stories written by my colleague, Danielle, um, I encourage listeners to also check out her data bite on in vivo car engineering. She rounded up the space of private biotechs, sliced them according to what delivery vehicles are they using to send in DNA or RNA constructs in vivo to reprogram immune cells in someone's body and the advantages there. There's also been two takeouts in that space so far of early stage companies, which she captures. So You know, with these new modalities, we're always liking to see who's doing what, what are the subtleties and differences between what they're doing and and who's getting involved as partners, et cetera. So check that out as well. Fantastic. Thanks, Karen. Just a quick reminder that next week's podcast will be the first of five Back to School podcasts publishing each day, and they will be paired with five days worth of content on biocentury.com. That's all we have for today's podcast. Thank you all for joining us. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. <laughs>